you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus <clears throat> chapter 27, Exodus chapter 27. We're continuing on with the tabernacle series tonight, and I was saying to someone earlier that there is so much beauty to be found in this study, and we only have so much time together on a Monday night, and I am only skimming the surface for you. So be sure to take some time and, and continue to study for yourself, go over the notes, dig a little deeper, ask God for deeper revelation. I promise there is much more than what I'm teaching buried in the pages of this book. Last week, Dawn, if you can put the picture of the tabernacle with the, with the linen curtain up on the screen. Last week, we studied about the outer court and the linen curtain uh, the tabernacle, we learned, uh, was 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. And the 100 is, is, is symbolic. Nope, not that one. <laughs> we need to get that one out of our screens. Uh, no, do we have one of the entire tabernacle, one with the fire burning? That's good. That'll work. That's perfect, Don. No, go back to that one. I like it. Uh, we, we learned that it's 100 cubic feet long and 50 wide, and the 100 is symbolic of Christ giving 100% commitment to what God had asked him to do. And, and of course, then, for you and I to offer that same kind of commitment to him, how could we not? After we learn about what he's done for us, how could we not be 100% sold out to him? 50 is symbolic of jubilee or liberty or freedom. And the picture of what this tabernacle brings to us, Christ on the cross brings to us the liberty, the freedom that we have. And you, you, you learned that the tabernacle was enclosed by a linen curtain that was symbolic of the righteousness of Christ and righteousness that, that separates us as sinful people from God's holiness. And, and, and we talked about how the linen curtains were suspended from 60 pillars, 20 on the south, 20 on the, the, the north. 10 on the west and 10 on the east. And a pillar, what was a picture of uprightness or strength or stability. And we talked about how there were 60, when sin entered the picture with Adam, how there were 60 upright men in the genealogy between Adam and Christ. And it's a picture of those pillars. Each pillar was placed five cubic feet apart the number of five we see many times throughout the tabernacle, but especially in that linen curtain, the picture of righteousness, because we are saved by grace through faith. Our righteousness is of filthy rags, and Christ imputes his righteousness to us, so now we can say we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We talked about how those pillars uh, were, were uh, set in sockets of bronze, and bronze was symbolic of judgment against sin. And the Hebrew word socket means to judge. And Christ, the upright one, the one without sin, was judged for our sin. <laughs> he paid a price he didn't know because we owed a price we could not pay. And each pillar was secured by a bronze peg. The peg in the pillar uh, held it secure, and it's a picture of the nails in the hands of Christ on the cross of Calvary, holding him secure to the cross. Uh, and the linen curtain, we talked about closing off all other entrances to the presence of God because our sin closes off any entrance to God's presence. 
and how there is a way in and it's through the gate. Jesus says there's only one way and it's through him and that he is the gate. He is the gate. He calls himself the gate and that's that beautiful curtain there in the front and there was one way into the presence of God. And and church, can I tell you, the same is true today. There is one way. There's not many ways. Your good works will not get you to heaven. Uh, Your giving and financial contributions will not get you to heaven. Muhammad will not get you to heaven. Buddha will not get you to heaven. There is one way, and it's through the gate, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That has not changed. Now, Don, we have the picture of the camps set up around the tabernacle. We talked, no, give me the one that's in the shape of that one. Um, We talked about how uh, in Numbers 2, God instructed the Israelites to camp around the tabernacle. Uh, We gave you a sheet that had all of the numbers that you can find in in Numbers 2, all of the numbers of troops that were set up uh, around the camp, around the tabernacle. The word camp that God uses there in Hebrew means army. It means band or company or station. It's a military term. And and it's a picture of all of those camps, all of the tribes, the 12 tribes, being an army that God was assembling and his presence was in the midst. Can I tell you, church, we are in a battle and God is preparing an army. We are the army of God and he is with us like a mighty warrior. And that was the picture of what we studied the last couple weeks. And now tonight, we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. We'll begin reading in verse 1 through uh, verse 8. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubics long and five cubics wide. There's the number five again. And an altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns of four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners." You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that, that the network may be midway up, in, up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it was shown you on the mountain, so shall you make it. Notice he says, as it was shown you on the mountain. We've seen that over and over. We'll continue to see that. God is directing him back to the divine blueprint. We've said this numerous times, that this was not a random building of something that, that Moses uh, told God told Moses to build. God was very specific. And the reason he was very specific is there's details that he is drawing. This is a type and shadow of of Christ's coming. And so he was specific about the details. And this is where we're going to pick up tonight. The brazen altar uh, is what we're going to talk about. It was a picture of the cross of Calvary and all that that Christ accomplished on the cross. Masha, can you come here? And Karen, uh, many of you have heard me do this illustration, but I, I, I need to just start here because you need to have a full understanding of the gospel message. Isn't it funny how we can come to church Sunday after Sunday and we miss the basis of the gospel? message. 
You've heard me say numerous times that in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were created to walk with God, to have fellowship with him. And, and when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to them, uh, you, you can eat of any tree that you want in this garden. It's all yours. I'm not hold, withholding anything from you. But there's one tree, uh, the, the tree of good and evil, you cannot eat from. Because if you eat from it, you will surely die. Who knows that God means what he says? See, church, this is where I think we go wrong because we don't really believe anymore in the church that God means what he says. But I'm here to tell you he does. His word, he means his word. When he tells us to do something, he means it. We have such a distorted message of grace that's being, that's being preached today that we really have gotten to a point where we just wink at God and we don't really believe he means what he says anymore, but he does. And so he said to Adam and Eve, I'm not withholding anything from you. All of this beauty is yours. Just one thing, don't eat of that tree because if you do, you will surely die. Because death comes when we disobey God. Anybody know that? The wages of sin, disobedience to God, missing the mark that God has set out before us, is death. And God means it. Well, so you know, Adam and Eve had a heart like mine. And the first thing they do is truck right over to that tree and start eating of it. And then they realize what they've done. And God comes into the garden and they hide from him because that's what sin does to us. It makes us hide from a God who's loving and kind and merciful and filled with grace. <laughs> and God says, where are you? <laughs> and he says, what have you done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Death must come because God means what he says. And so Adam and Eve hid because they knew that, that God meant what he said and death was going to come. So maybe, just maybe, he wouldn't find them. <laughs> But God knew where they were. And, and so instead of taking, because God means what he says, instead of taking their life, he finds a substitute. And the Bible says that he took an animal and he killed them. And he used the skin of that animal to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame and their guilt. Still works today. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary covers our shame and our guilt. He doesn't want his people full of shame and guilt. And so that began the sacrificial system where, where, where there has to be sin to come into the presence of a holy God and he's holy. To come into his presence where we cannot, we have to be holy. We have to be without sin and sin separates us from God. He can't look on sin. He has to cover it. There must be death. It's the blood that atones for sin. Death. The, the, the life of a, a creature is in its blood. So when you take the life of a creature, the blood is shed and death comes. Do you see it? And so that began the sacrificial system. And now because we're sinful, because sin entered the picture with Adam and Eve, now we're a sinful creature. We want to approach God. We can't approach him because we're sinful. He's not. He's holy. So the, the, the sacrificial system, like we're going to see tonight, began where we had to bring a, a, an animal to a substitute to atone for our sin. And we would, what they do, and we'll see that tonight, they would place their hand on the head of the animal and they would confess all of their sin. And that animal would be, their sin would be transferred to the animal and the animal's life would be given to them. Their, the animal's life would be substituted for theirs. The animal would pay the price. And that's 
the sacrificial system that we're going to learn about tonight. But that got old. Who knows if you had to bring an animal every time you sinned, that would get old quick. Can you just imagine? Day after day, month after month, year after year, having to find a perfect sacrifice that was acceptable to God, hoping he would accept it to atone for your sin, to take the death that you deserved. And so all along, and the reason we're studying the tabernacle is because it points to Jesus. It shows us our need of Jesus. I'm sure every time they had to bring a sacrifice, they were like, Lord, if there could just be another way. I want to get into your presence. I just got to find this sacrifice. It's a pain. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God? (laughs) And so God always had this plan. This wasn't his plan B. It was always to point him, point people to the need of Jesus. And so God says, sin separates. Let's make Karen God. And, and I'm man, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. And I can't come near God. I can't come into God's presence because I'm sinful. He's holy. How holy do you have to be to come into a presence of a perfect God? Perfect. Wrath will come. He can't look on sin. He's perfect. He's holy. There's nothing bad in him. And so he wants fellowship with me. He wanted it from the start. We see it in Genesis, when it all started in Genesis. He wanted fellowship with man. But now man chose. We chose. Somebody say chose. We chose to sin. Every time we sin, we choose it. There is another option. And we choose it knowing it brings death. I choose it knowing it brings death. But God wants me. He wants fellowship with me. He wants to be known. That's why he came in the middle of my camp, because he wants to be known. He wants me to know him. He wants to be known by us. And so he says, I got the sacrificial system. There's got to be a better way. I'm going to bring a once and for all sacrifice, and Masha's going to be Jesus. And, And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. He was sinless the whole time he walked on earth. He was every, every bit of man like you and I, and yet he was sinless. He was perfect. See, he had to be because he couldn't bear my sin if he wasn't. Because you see, the sacrificial system demanded a perfect sacrifice without blemish, without spot. <laughs> That was my Jesus. And so God, who loved me so much and didn't want to be separated from me, sent his son, chose for his son to suffer so I didn't have to. That's love, can I just tell you? And Jesus came on the cross of Calvary and he, and he bore my sin. The Bible says the punishment that brought me peace was upon Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He bore my sin, past, present, future. He bore on the cross of Calvary. I deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, Jesus Christ, is eternal life. Eternal life. And because Jesus bore the punishment that I deserved on the cross of Calvary, what were his last words on the cross of Calvary? It is finished. Rhea Briscoe's sin debt is finished. Tetelestai, which means paid in full. Rhea's sin debt is paid in 
full. I just took the punishment. I bore it. I, 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 I carried her sin to the cross of Calvary, the spotless land. He, I transferred my sin to him. He transferred his righteousness to me. What is up with that? And now the Bible says I can come boldly into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Christ, and I can be in God's presence again. That's just good. That is just good. That is what all of this is about. That is what all this is about, is God wants relationship with his people. But you see, his holiness, my sinfulness cannot come into his presence. There has to be blood. There has to be a sacrifice. And that was in Jesus Christ. And so he was my substitute. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight When God gave uh, Moses instructions to build the tabernacle, he actually, can we go back to the tabernacle picture, Don? He actually gave him instructions to start from the inside out. So his instructions, yes, thank you. Start it with that Ark of the Covenant. Do you see it in the Holy of Holies? That's where he started his instruction. And then he gave him every piece of furniture from the inside of the Holy of Holies out into the outer court and then the linen curtains. And so that is how the instruction came in the word of God. But that's not how we're going to study it. We've been studying it from the outside in. We're saving the best for last. And and so you ask maybe why we haven't studied it in order of the scripture. That's why. Um, And tonight, we're going to begin looking at the furniture. And when I talk about furniture, I'm not talking about a sofa and chairs. I'm I'm talking about the the, the pieces of, of furniture in the Holy of Holies, the holy place in the outer courtyard. Uh, but we're going to look specifically tonight at one piece, the brazen altar. And Don, do you have a picture of the brazen altar for me? There you go. That was a good one. Um, the brazen altar. Now, the brazen altar was also known, you might also know it as the altar of burnt offering or the altar of God, if you will. Um, but we're going to talk about it being the brazen altar. The word altar in the Hebrew means slaughter place slaughter place. It it comes from the word word meaning to slaughter, to kill, to sacrifice. It was a place of substitutionary sacrifice. It was a place of death. It declares to the people who see it without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sound familiar? That's a scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no sacrifice, no forgiveness of sins. In verse 8, we see that, that he was very specific how this, this bronze and altar should be made. It was, he was very, very specific. And, and so we're going to look at that blueprint. If you see in verse 1, it measured, it was to measure five cubic feet. Remember, we talked about five cubics was about seven and a half feet. Five cubics long and five cubics wide. And it was three cubics in height. Now remember, the number five is the prophetic number for what? Grace. And it's a reminder that the sacrifice that brought us near to God was a gift of grace. We can't earn it. We have to receive it. We have to to allow the substitution to take place on, on our part. Nowhere is the gift of his grace more evident than in the sacrifice he made for us on the cross of Calvary. We have been saved by grace through faith. So that no man can boast. The number three suggests, and this is so cool. 
Remember, we're looking at a picture of what the cross of Calvary really was like. So the number three, it really suggests that third day when Christ was raised from the dead, and that signified the approval of God, that the sacrifice was acceptable in God's eyes. On the third day, he overcame hell, death, and the grave. He resurrected. Death could not hold him. The the brazen altar was one of seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. It was the largest of all pieces, and that's really important. In fact, one commentator said it was large enough that all of the other pieces of the uh, furniture in the tabernacle could be placed in that altar. That's how big it was. And, and, And that's really important because its size points to its importance. Its location was important as well. Don, give me the picture uh, uh, where you can see. Nope, where you can see it from the outside looking in. Nope. Next one. That. That'll work. So do you see how, uh, do we have one that's a little bigger? It looks a little, there we go. Do you see how when you come through that veil, that gate in the front, the first thing that you're going to encounter is what? The brazen altar, it's going to be there staring you in the face. It was made of bronze. You could not miss it. It was, it was an eyesore right there the second you walked through the gate. And, and, and it's such a picture because you see anybody, it was on the inside of the gate. You had to come in to see it. You see, if there was universal salvation, if it was for everybody, you would not have to get through the gate to get to it. Do you see that? If Christ's, if Christ's sacrifice was for everybody, and not just the chosen, the elect. I'm telling you, you are all elect. You've all been chosen by God. But the question is, will you come through the gate? Will you enter through Jesus? Do you understand he is the only way? But the second you choose to enter through that gate, there is the bronze altar waiting for you. Because you see, it barred the approach to the presence of God. Anyone wanting to approach God had to first encounter that altar. The substitute sacrifice had to be accepted and the blood of the sacrifice appropriated before they could come into the presence of God. Uh, M.R. Dahan says, the brazen altar was both a way to God and a barrier to God. It was the type and the shadow is accurate. As I said, there's one way through that gate, through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. The sacrifice Christ made for us on the cross of Calvary was not for everyone, but rather only for those who believe, who entered through that gate. Remember, in Egypt, the death angel, the Egyptians did not have the blood applied to the doorposts and what happened? The death angel came. The blood had to be applied. To those to whom the blood was applied, the death angel passed over. So that brazen altar would have been the first thing that the Israelites encountered as they came through that courtyard. And it was large. They wouldn't have been able to miss it. And and, and so they knew that the tabernacle could not be entered. Now granted, the tabernacle was only entered by priests and high priests, but what are we called? Royal priesthood. And so this is a picture of us. Uh, It was another reminder that their sin needed dealt with before they could gain entrance to the divine presence. 
There was a connection between sacrifice and access to God, and that remains true today. We cannot overlook it or ignore it. There must be blood. I don't care if you brought a perfect sacrifice. If the Israelites came through that veil and they brought a beautiful lamb and it was perfect and without sin, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, if they brought this wonderful sacrifice and they looked at it and said, look how wonderful this is. Isn't he a sweet little lamb? And look, he doesn't have anything wrong with him. And they turned and they left. That sacrifice was not acceptable. What made that sacrifice acceptable? Blood. The death of the sacrifice on their behalf. Do you see it? Do you see it? Please tell me if I'm going too fast and, and you're missing something. <laughs> it's pouring out of my mouth. But I want you to look at the materials that were used to build this, this altar. Don, go back to the bronze picture. Just of the, there, that one. Uh, uh, the altar, we can see in Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2, the altar was made of acacia wood or shittim wood, you, some of your translations will have, and it was overlaid with bronze. Now, it's important that you see that. It was made of acacia wood, but overlaid with bronze. Acacia or shittim wood uh, that would have been in abundance in the desert. It, the acacia tree, I used to, our ministry used to be named Acacia Ministries, and I chose it because of what the acacia stands for. The acacia tree has the ability to survive and to thrive in the most barren and difficult climates. Do you know that? That's why it was in abundance in the wilderness. The wood, get this, is resistant to decay. It's difficult to be penetrated by water, and it's virtually indestructible by insects. It had some kind of, of chemical that it secreted that the insects wanted nothing to do with it. And so in Acts 13, 37, we're talking about Jesus in that passage, and it says, He whom God raised up did not see corruption or decay. Do you see the picture there? The acacia wood uh, was virtually indestructible. It, it was resistant to decay. And it's a picture of Jesus. When, his body, when he died, his body did not see corruption, but rather it was resurrected. The acacia tree was very hard. It was very durable. It was long-lasting, and it was virtually indestructible. And, and you need to know that Christ he was tortured. He suffered a horrible death. He, he endured abuse on the cross of Calvary, and yet he proved he was completely indestructible because on the third day, he rose again. He overcame hell, death, and the grave. Death could not hold him. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Can I tell you, that's the difference between Muhammad and Buddha and whoever else you're talking about is we serve a living God. He's in the world today. He's seated on the right hand of the Father. He's the only God that I know that's still alive and well. So acacia wood is symbolic of the incorruptible, sinless, sinless humanity of Christ. The altar was all bronze, and we talked last week about how bronze is symbolic of what? Judgment. So remember, I told you that the acacia wood was overlaid with bronze. So bronze is the hardest of all metals. And, and commentators say it had great resistance to fire, even more so than gold. Bronze had great resistance to fire, even more so than gold. What was going to take place in that bronze altar? 
fire. And so if that wood had not been covered with bronze, what would have happened? Would have burned up. And, and so that bronze strengthened, the wood was strengthened by the overlay of bronze. And so it could withstand the fire. Can I tell you what? Christ was strengthened with power from on high. And he could withstand the fire of the cross. He could withstand the the fire of my sin on the cross of Calvary. And he came forth victorious. He came forth victorious. So the wood being overlaid with bronze tells us that the ability to Christ, our sin bearer, to endure the judgment of God for our sin. Jesus was a picture of the true brazen altar, able to endure the fire of God's wrath on our behalf. It was called the brazen altar to distinguish it from another altar in the tabernacle. There was one other altar, and it's in the the holy place, and it was called the golden altar. It was the altar of incense. And this altar that we're talking about tonight was made of bronze, not gold. There was no gold in it. In fact, gold isn't found, and make sure you understand this, gold is not found anywhere in the outer court. However, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to study more, and you're going to find that gold, the closer you get to the presence of God, the more gold you're going to see, because gold speaks of glory. Silver speaks of redemption. Bronze speaks of judgment. So imagine the view when they walk through that gate into the courtyard when, 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 when all they could see was this bronze. The, the laver was bronze. The, the altar was bronze. All it did was reek of the judgment of God for their sin. We see brass and lots of scripture relating to God's judgment. In Revelation, he was making judgments on the church, and he, he, we read that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace. Uh, it, when the Israelites were complaining and whining in the wilderness, the Lord sent fiery serpents, and, and they bit the people, and they were all dying. And then what, God, what did God tell Moses to do? Make a what? A what kind of serpent? Bronze serpent, and put it up on a pole, and they would be healed. Goliath, what did Goliath wear? A helmet of bronze, a, a bronze coat of mail. He had an armor bronze, of, uh, bronze on his legs, and he had a javelin of bronze. And it was a picture of God's judgment against him. He came down, did he not? He came down. What was the purpose of the brazen altar? It was a place of sacrifice. A place of bloodshed. Upon it, sacrifices were to be consumed, and so it would meet and satisfy the wrath of God. I told you that Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Atonement means at one We're at one with God because of the blood that was shed. So can you imagine... Always having to bring that sacrifice. Can you imagine the smell? Imagine walking into that courtyard. It, it was, it, they would slaughter animals night and day. They were, there were how many, what, 600,000 people all bringing animals to, to be sacrificed. Can you imagine the stench? Have you ever smelled animals? When I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and, and we had Amish and Mennonite and farms all around us, and my next-door neighbors butchered pigs. And every Thanksgiving, I'll never forget, we could hardly wait to have mom's Thanksgiving meal and our neighbors are butchering pigs and the stench 
from the, from, they would hang these pigs and let the blood just drain out of them. And the stench in our neighborhood from that, that was just a few pigs. Can you imagine what this was like? I had a really hard time finding any pictures at all. Don, there's a picture with blood around the altar. I, I have trouble. I looked picture after picture after picture, trying to find a picture that looked a little something like that. None of the pictures I could find for you showed blood. And I was like, Lord, this doesn't even make sense because that place would have been filled with blood. It probably would have been a river of blood. The, the priests, their, 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 white, uh, their white garment would have been covered with blood. It would have been splattered everywhere. They, they splattered the horns of the altar with blood. Can you imagine? You see, we get so comfortable in God's word. But how would it have been like the stench? Because you see, I understand this. I understand the stench of my sin. See, maybe some of you have been good boys and girls, but I'm telling you, this is not one of them right here. I, I agree with Paul when he says, yeah, I am the chief of all sinners. I, there, there is nothing you could come to me and say, Rhea, I did this. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. Let me tell you. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Why do you think I preach like a madwoman? Because I understand the stench of sin. I understand I deserve death. And for some unknown reason, God loved me enough to give me his son so that I could have life again. And you see, I will spend the rest of my life preaching it. Yes. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Hebrews 10 uh, says, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. All of this pointed to the need for a once and for all sacrifice, and that was Jesus Christ. C.W. Slemming says, I love his book on the tabernacle. It says, as a holy God, he has irrevocable claims which must be fully realized before he can show forth his mercy. Sin must be furnished, either in person or through a substitute. The lamb, goat, bull, etc. were all Israel's substitutes, and God accepted them by means of the altar. But these great claims of God have been since fully met in Christ at Calvary because he became the offering, the altar, and the priest. You see, that brazen altar speaks of the cross of Calvary. And Jesus was not just the, the sacrifice, the perfect once and for all sacrifice. He was the altar. He was the priest offering the sacrifice. He was all of it. Do you see that? Can you imagine, though, walking in and seeing that altar? It was the brazen altar that the holiness and the righteousness of God were displayed A.W. Pink says, his hatred of sin and his justice in punishing it. Do you understand that he's just in punishing our sin? Do, do you get that? Because I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Even Isaiah did. Do you remember the, the story of Isaiah? I think it's in, don't quote me, six. I think Isaiah six might be eight. I think it's six. Where, where, where the Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his glory filled the temple. You know that scripture. And what did Isaiah do when he saw the Lord? Now, this is Isaiah. Uh, I heard Beth Moore say one time that she thought this was Isaiah in the beginning of his ministry, you know, when he didn't have time to get it all together. But she said she realized that it was really Isaiah at the end of his ministry when he saw the Lord. And what was his response when he saw the Lord high and lifted up? 
He said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw his sin and he wanted to back away from God. And the seraphim, which means angels of fire, <laughs> came and they got a coal out of the altar. They touched his lip and they, he said, now your sin is atoned for. That altar, that, that coal would have come from, I believe, this altar would have come from an altar of sacrifice. Do you know why? Because there has to be blood to atone for sin. Now you say, Rhea, where in the world did that, where did a coal with blood come from? Look, go back to our other picture, Don, uh, the gold, the bronze one. So look, if I put a, a sacrifice on top of that, if I tied it to those four corners and the fire came up and I slaughtered it and blood came, where would the blood go? Down through that grate onto the ground, okay? To the coals that were keeping that fire going. She took a coal, the seraphim took a coal and touched his lips and said, your sin has been taken away, has been atoned for. Think about it. Verse 8, we see that the brazen altar was to be hollow. This was so interesting to me. Can you imagine how heavy that would have been to transport? They had to lug this through the wilderness. And, uh, and so God said in his brilliance, make it hollow so it's a little bit lighter. But I think there's another reason. If you turn over, and please turn with me to Exodus 20, verse 24, because I really don't want you to miss this. This is the punch of the night. It's so good. Exodus 20, 24. It says, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So what he was saying is, you can build an altar of earth underneath this altar. That's probably what happened. It's probably why it was hollow. Remember that tabernacle was portable. It had to be carried everywhere. And so when they got to where they were going, commentators think they would have built it up with earth. They would have put, uh, they, they, they even could have used rocks. If you look at uh, Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, and the Lord God, oh, I'm sorry. If you go to Joshua 8, 30 and 31, now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Abel. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. Stay with me. Because what does God tell us we are? Living stones. Okay? When in, in Genesis, what were Adam and Eve were created out of what? The dust of the earth. The ground. So now God is saying, I want you to build an altar, take this brazen altar, and put underneath it the, the dust of the earth. Put underneath it ground. Then you can use stones if you want. What's it a picture of? Man, what is that blood going to gush down and, and fall right over? Living stones, dirt, me. It's a picture of the sacrifice of God washing over my life. I am covered with the blood of Jesus. Do you understand that? When God looks down, see, I didn't tell you this when, well, when Masha and Karen were up here, but now when God looks down, does he see my sin? No. Do you know what he sees? Because I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus over me. That's why the blood speaks against Satan. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. He sees the blood because I am a living stone. I am the dust of the earth covered with that blood dripping down from the altars. That's such a good picture. But here's what put me on my face this week. 
The word, when, when Joshua said, I built an altar of the Lord and an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. That's in Joshua 8, verses 30 and 31. Are you with me? He's saying you can build an altar, but no tool should touch that stone. Are you with me? The word for tool there is weapon. So I kept saying, Lord, what is that? Why would, a, why would you use a weapon to carve a stone out for an altar? And then I realized that in most translations, it's translated, it's warlike imagery. And that was really odd to me. And, and then I found another scripture that said, if you use those stones to build an altar, it would profane the altar, and that altar would not be acceptable to God. Are you with me? So a tool, a warlike image, a weapon on a, on a stone, I am a living stone, <laughs> would profane the altar and not be acceptable to God. Stay with me. Try to stay with me here because this is really good. David couldn't build the temple. Do you know why? Because he was a man of war and blood was on his hands. His son Solomon had to build the temple. Remember that? Because he, he couldn't touch it because he was a man of war. We are living stones. The Bible says we need to offer ourselves, make ourselves on an offering as a, as a, as a living sacrifice. And, and I want you to see that it can't be an acceptable offering if our lives are warlike and our mouths are weapons. It put me on my face this week. You see, I want more than anything in this whole entire world to present myself a living sacrifice on the altar of God. Just use me, God. I want you to use me. I'm just dying to myself. I just lock me down on those corners with those horns because you might need to tie me here because I'll crawl off. But I really want to be a living sacrifice. So just use me, Lord. And then this living stone crawls off the altar and uses her mouth as a weapon to say whatever I want to say to somebody or be as mean as I possibly want to be or rip into somebody or gossip about somebody. And my stone, my living stone, has now had a weapon used on it and profaned the altar of God. If that didn't get you, obviously, I mustn't have explained it well enough because First Peter 2.4 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12.1 says, therefore, brothers, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies, your mouths, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, for this is your true, your true and proper worship. I want you to notice the word offer there. Remember what we learned last week. God is not demanding you do this. He isn't requiring it. Paul's urging. <laughs> but God is saying, this is voluntary. Do you want to offer yourself as a living sacrifice? Do you want to not use a weapon on your life? Such a beautiful picture of God's people, living stones, not hewn, but being built 
as an altar before him for the purpose of offering their lives as a living sacrifice. There was a grate, you can see in that picture of the bronze altar, there was a grate inside of the altar. Um, it was hollow, and then inside it contained a grate in the middle in which fire burned through. And, um, and, and it's interesting to me, as I studied that, I was like, what's up with the great Lord? And then I began to think about how sometimes we really minimize the pain that Jesus endured on the cross of Calvary on our behalf, the agony that he endured. The great, commentators say, are symbol, is symbolic of the inward suffering that Jesus felt when he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. The Bible says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And I think sometimes we think that the cross was no big deal to him. He suffered. He was tortured. He was in agony. That inward suffering is what that great is symbolic of. Notice there were four horns. And this, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts about the brazen altar. It had four horns of brass mounted on the four corners of the altar. And those horns pointed outward in the four directions of the compass. And yes, it stands for the message of the gospel being extended to the four corners of the world. Absolutely, it stands for that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that, and that's why he gave Jesus for the world, that, that for God so loved the world. So this message is for the world. 1 John 2, 2 says, For he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only of ours only, but also for the whole world. This message is for the whole world. But it gets even better because the horns, do you see those four horns? They point at north and east and west and south. If you write that down on your paper, north and east and west and south. Underline the first letter of each of those words. North, east, west, south. What does that word say? So what is that bronze altar? Good news. I got some good news for you. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a savior, a what? A savior, the one who came to save his people from their sins, the bronze altar. Do you understand a savior has been born? The one who came to die, who was born to die. That's good news if I ever heard it. Can you believe that's what it means? Can you just believe it? That just gives me goosebumps. The message of the gospel is good news, and it's for all people, north, east, west, and south. So those horns were a way for the sacrifice to be bound to the altar. In Psalm 118.27, it says, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. <laughs> I think sometimes we think Jesus was raring to go to the cross of Calvary. And we see that, that, that Jesus went to the Father and he said, Father, if there's any other way... <laughs> I don't, I don't think he was like, yay, I get to go to the, the cross. I don't think he was like raring to go. I think he knew what that was going to, the agony that he was going to face. And he said, if there's any other way, nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, bind me to the altar, Lord, because I'm going. I'll do it. But if there's any other way, because I'd like to crawl off right now. But if there's any other way. But again, he was 100% committed to do 
the Father's will. His determination to go to the cross was a picture of the sacrifice being bound to the horns of the altar. Horns also symbolized power or strength. The horn of a ram was his power. The horn of the bull was his strength. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, delivered, it is the power of God unto salvation. The horn, power, strength of God unto salvation. Notice that there weren't any steps leading up to that altar. Go to the other picture, Don. Notice there weren't any steps leading up to the altar. It was built up on, uh, on a mound of ground. Um, and we know it had to have gone up because in Leviticus 9, it says, Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. So the altar, unlike most of the pictures like that one that we see, that's probably a wrong picture because it probably sat on elevated ground of some kind, a slope so access could be easily gained to the top of the altar. You say, well, Rhea, what difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference because speaking of the cross, Jesus in John 12, 32 said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He was lifted up on a hill called Calvary, on a brazen altar called Calvary, the once and for all sacrifice. I just want to briefly go over the utensils, and then I'll let you go. The utensils are listed, utensils are listed in 27.3. I want you to notice there are five. There are pans, there are shovels, there are basins, there are forks, and there are fire pans. And um, the pans would have been used to put the ashes in after that sacrifice was burned and fell down through the grates. There would have been the only thing that would have been remaining of that sacrifice was the ashes. And so the pans were used to carry them outside the camp. They, they did not let those ashes there and accumulate. They carried them outside the camp. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp. Leviticus 6, 10 through 11 um, let's just turn there. I, I just want to read that real quick. Leviticus 6. Let's just back a book. Leviticus 6. I promise I'm finishing. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. You see, the ashes were evidence of the thoroughness of the fire's work. It consumed the sacrifice. Our God is an all-consuming fire. It meant that God had accepted the sacrifice and the offerer could know that his sins were atoned for and when they removed the ashes, somebody's already there with me. What does he say he'll do with our sin? Remove them as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. Another utensil was a shovel. The shovels would um, shovel out the ashes and the coals or stir the ashes and the coals or feed the fire. The basins, they were receptacles for the blood so it could be sprinkled in the appropriate place. The forks were used to turn the meat and to arrange uh, sacrifice on the altar. And the fire pans, this is what I want you to see. I, I, I 
drew out all of these. We could have gone into more detail with these, but the fire pans are what I really want you to see. They were used to transport hot embers from one altar, the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, to the other one, the one we're going to study about in a few weeks, the altar of incense. They took fires from this burnt offering, coals from this burnt offering into the altar of incense. Fascinating. You're going to love when you understand why. But what I really wanted you to see is the first time they started a fire in this brazen altar. Do you know who started it? Fire came down from heaven and lit the fire ablaze. And so what they did when they would move camp is they'd scoop up some of the coals. This is so good in that fire pan, and they would carry it to the next camp because the fire was a continuous fire, and it could never go out. You see, God started the fire, but it was up to the priests to keep it going. I'm telling you, there's some of you here tonight, and I feel it in my spirit even now as I say this, that God started a fire in you at one time, but now it's smoldering. It's gone out, and, and dear one, it's up to you to keep the fire going. We have to be intentional to keep the fire going. We have to guard that fire with everything we have. Before we close, I want to look at how it was transported, because like the rest of the tabernacle, the altar uh, had to be portable. And provision was made by God for its transport. In Exodus 27, 6 and 7, we see that God instructed them to make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze, and the poles were to be inserted into rings so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried. Now, two poles, four rings. Don, do we have a picture? Yeah, you can see it in that one. See the two poles that were going through the, the sides of the, the brazen altar? There would have been four rings to slide those poles through. When they transport them, they would put it on their shoulders, four men, and they would transport the altar through the wilderness. Are you with me? Now, what if you only had uh, one side? So you only had one pole. Wouldn't have been sufficient to carry it, would it? It would have been off balance. If you took out one of those poles and you only used one to carry it, it would have been impossible. It would have been off balance. Those two poles are symbolic of the two parts of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ. If you only had one of those poles, the death of Christ, it would not be sufficient. You need both. You need the death and the resurrection. Together, they make up that four corner, the, the, the good news. Isn't that good? One last thing I want you to see. Read Numbers 4, chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. This was fascinating to me. Also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. A what color cloth? A purple cloth over it. They shall put on it all of its implements, which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread on it a covering of badger skin and insert its poles. Interesting fact. Only the only piece in all of the tabernacle, you're going to find this out, the only piece that was covered in, in purple, the brazen altar. All the other pieces were in blue. What did I tell you purple represents? 
Now, so when it's transported, it was covered in purple fabric, but then it was badger skins were put over it. Badger skins, you, you need to know, uh, they, they, they were, um, let me just find out what badger skins really were symbolic of. Uh, badger skins were ugly. They were, they were like leather, basically, and, and I'm missing it in my notes. Um, badger skins were really gross. They were, they, they were to cover up that purple cloth. And so the world, as they traveled through the wilderness, would see the badger skins, but they didn't know that underneath was purple. They didn't know the royalty was underneath it. Okay, fast forward. Remember, picture of Christ on the cross of Calvary. On the cross of Calvary, there were two thieves on the cross. <laughs> one repented, one not. What, what did one thief? He mocked Jesus. He ridiculed him. The other thief said, Jesus, remember me when you get to your kingdom royalty, kingdom. You see, one thief recognized the royalty. The other only saw the badger skins. Oh, that's so good. I'm telling you, that's so stinking good. That's so good. It's so good. So good. Brazen altar was the starting point in the approach of God. We're going to learn more next week, but ignoring it would keep man from going any further into God's presence. It was a place for sin to be judged, sin that separated man from God. It clearly portrayed the death, death as a result of sin. You could take one look at it and you could see that, that sin caused death. It is a beautiful picture of the love of the Father who did not want to be separated from his people and made provision by sending his son to bear the punishment, to be that sacrificial lamb to bear our punishment. Mark Dehan writes this, there is no approach to God except by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith in his death and substitutionary sacrifice. The Israelite might bring the most beautiful, perfect, lovely, spotless lamb to the priest, but unless it was killed and offered as a sacrifice, the place of the sinner, it availed absolutely nothing at all. We too may extol the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ, admire his sinless beauty, sing of his virtues, magnify his graciousness, and laud him as the perfect example and noble martyr to, be a noble, to a noble cause. But it will not do without his death and personal faith in his shed blood. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, therefore, not his life. It is the death, not his life, as our only hope of salvation. The cross stands squarely between the sinner and God. But Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, delivered. You see, it's not that Jesus was a good man. It's not that, that he was a good teacher or that even he was the son of God. It's not that he was a spotless once and for all sacrifice. It was the fact that he died for our sin, that he took the punishment that we deserved, that he defeated hell, death, and the grave and rose again. And he is living today making intercession for our behalf. You see, without that, Without that brazen altar, without the spotless lamb who gave his life on our behalf, we do not have a right to come into God's presence in eternity. I'm sorry. I can't water it down to make you feel better. 
You see, the wages of sin, that's what we earn. I work at Elmbrook Church uh, 40 hours a week, and I get a wage for what I work. It's what I earn. I earn more because I work more than 40 hours a week. But that's what I earned. The wages of sin, what we earn for our sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the once and for all perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, came as a gift to us to give us eternal life. But we have to accept his substitution on our behalf. We have to lay our hands on him and confess our sin, just like they laid their hand on the head of the, the, the sacrifice and they, they confessed their sin and, and, and that sin was transferred onto that sacrifice and then that sacrifice was killed on their behalf. We have to, con- if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's master, he's owner of my life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I'm going to ask Ian to come and, and close, but as he closes, I, I can't, I, I just can't do this. I, I have such deep concern. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with concern. I, I have friends that are going to church on Sunday morning, and, and they can say the right thing, but they're dead. They they don't care about the Word of God. They don't read the Word of God. They show up on Sunday morning. That's not about condemnation. I'm just trying to tell you we've got to issue a wake-up call. I'm telling you, church, we have been Lord asleep. We have learned to believe that our sin really doesn't matter. We've learned to nod at God and just say, "Mm, I see you there on Sunday morning. And that's what we give Him. But the Bible says, the Bible says that He is to be our Lord if you believe in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, master. You see, a master, a Lord, a slave does what he says. I'll obey you, Lord. I'll do what you tell me to do. If you confess, Jesus is Lord. That means you don't get to live like you want to live anymore. That means you belong to him. You do what he tells you to do. And you believe in your heart that your sinful, messed up life, the punishment that you deserved was transferred onto him on the cross of Calvary. That he took the punishment you deserve. He shall be saved. If you've never done that, if you've never made him Lord, you see, if all you've done is look at him as a perfect sacrifice, a nice little Passover lamb, but you've never received the substitution for the death you deserve. It's not going to help you. You will have no access to the Father because the Bible says no one, you're not the exception, no one comes to the Father except through Christ. I'm not kidding you. I, I feel this deep within my soul. This world is a vapor. Even if you are one of the lucky ones and live a long life, it's a vapor. It's a breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. This world was never meant to be our home. We're just passing through. Our treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's eternity. That's forever with him. You see, I live, I, I'm, I try, David and my lion, I try to live intentional with, with eternity always in the forefront of my mind. When I'm at a restaurant, I, I'm with waitresses, I am thinking eternity. Do they know Jesus? 
every conversation I have, I am intentional. Do you know Jesus? Because I'm telling you, the day is coming when we are going to be absent from the body. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you. If I could scare you into heaven, I would. Because hell is real. It is real. It is real. Just because we don't preach it anymore doesn't mean it's not real. Sit with me. I'll show you how real it is. Eternal separation from God. From the only peace we have in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal torment. Do you not understand? For the longest time, I had a sign on my refrigerator that says, never forget the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and the length of eternity. We live like this is the world we're living for. Angela said to me tonight, she knows my mom's favorite song was, I'll fly away. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Some morning, you're going to fly away and your life is going to be over. And dear one, I need to ask you, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you will spend eternity? I do. It's not an arrogant thing. I'm telling you, absent from the body, this girl is present with the Lord. Not because of my good deeds, not because of anything I've done, but because of the brazen altar, because of the one that was crucified in my place, took the death I deserved so that I could have the life I don't deserve in eternity with him. Yes, that's the truth. And you see, it's so simple. My birthday's coming up, in case you didn't know. It's my birthday month. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love birthdays. I love gifts. Dave will tell you. And if I had a gift right now, because I don't just love to get gifts, I love to give them as well. And if I was going to give Diane this gift and it was really beautifully wrapped and I wanted you to have it more than anything in the world, what would you have to do, Diane? You'd have to take it and receive it from me. And, and, and I could say, Diane, please, I want you to have this gift. Peter's son, Jake, called me the other day and he wanted me to have a gift. And I didn't want to take it from him. I didn't want him to give me that amount of gift. And, and, and he said, Rhea, I want you to have this gift. And I refused it. Out of love for him. But I missed out on the gift. Do you see that? And I could want Diane to take this gift because I love her so much. But she could refuse to take it and miss out on all that I wanted to give to her. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He wants you to have this gift. It's a gift. Diane wouldn't earn the gift I gave to her. It would just be a gift I lavished onto her. You don't earn this gift. You can't be good enough. You can't be uh, 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 sinless enough. You can't be perfect enough. Let, let's straighten that out right now. I hear it, Lord. It, it, the Bible says... I went into Waukesha State Bank. They, they have this uh, teller outside that they put the little thing through the, what do you call it? Shoot. And there's a pen, Waukesha State Bank pen in the, the little container. 
I signed out. I filled out my deposit slip. I put it back in the little container, put it down the chute, and then I, I, I got my money back, and I went, pulled away, and I looked down, and I thought, ah, I have a pen. It says, Walker Joe State Bank. I stole it. What does that make me? A thief. I love my man so much, but I was out someplace not long ago. I think it was with Les. <laughs> and we saw this man without a shirt on. And he had muscles like this. And I went, whoa! <laughs> and I was like, don't look, Les. <laughs> I went, tasty, <laughs> don't look. <laughs> what does that make me? Adultery. Have you ever told a lie? Little white lie. Bible says no thief, no adulterer, no liar has any part in the kingdom of God. How good do you have to be? Waukesha State Bank Penn excludes me. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God kept a record of sins, not one of us in this room could stand. I promise you. It's not about you being good enough about the propitiation. It's about the sacrifice made on your behalf being more than enough. But you have to receive the gift. You have to take it. It's a gift. So I want to give you a chance to do that. As you, will you stand as Ian finishes here? And, but I want to just give you a chance to just to just receive this gift. If you're here tonight and you've never received it before, it's very easy to just, the Bible says, if you (laughs) confess with your mouth, Lord, I'm a sinner. I fall short of your glory. I mess up. I miss the mark. Tell him that. I receive the gift that you've given me, God your son, Jesus Christ. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Now he says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Lord means you become a slave. A slave does what his master tells him. He takes you seriously when you call him Lord. The Bible says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do as I say? There's a scripture that says in that day, the day where we stand before him, many, not a few, many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do miraculous things in your name? And I will say, away from me. I never knew you. You see, he doesn't just want lip service. He wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. He wants intimacy and connection with you. So if you're ready to do that, say, Lord, I want you to be my master. I want to know you better. I make you my Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that Christ raised it, that God raised him from the dead, that he paid the price for your sin, that it's finished now because of what he did. Tell him that you received that gift and that you believe. You shall be saved. 
shall be saved. And so, Father, I pray for every person that prayed that tonight. I pray, Lord God, that you would just come now and fill them with your sweet Holy Spirit, that you would saturate their lives, Lord, from the top of their head to the tips of their toes. I pray, Lord God, that peace would just overwhelm them, that, that fear would be far from them, and that they would know, Lord God, that if they, they're absent from the body, they can look forward to being present with you. That they have surrendered their life to you, to your Lordship. They've received the substitution that you made for them. And now, Lord, you invite them to come boldly into your presence. Be more real to them than you've ever been before, Lord. Show them your salvation, I pray, in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.